Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm going to talk this morning uh, about the subject of loneliness. Um, quite recently, a number of journalists and writers were asked to compile a list of the most expressive words in the English language. And this is a sample of what they came up with. Uh, they said that the most beautiful word uh, is love. Uh, the warmest word is friend. The most tragic word is death. The most inspiring word is faith. The coldest word is no. And the bitterest word, they, they said, is lonely. You see, uh, millions upon millions of people are lonely. Uh, this was the case, of course, before the pandemic, uh, which, of course, over the past year or so has made the problem even more desperate for many, many people. And one recent study, this was a study in the US, found that loneliness is as dangerous to one's health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It can lead to dementia or Alzheimer's disease, a weakened immune system, and a shorter lifespan. It's a huge, huge uh, social issue. So the question I wanted to address this morning is, can the Bible, because that's where we need to go first. Can the Bible throw any light on the issue of, firstly, why we are lonely? And secondly, how we can prevent loneliness from blighting our lives? And make no mistake, many, many lives are blighted by loneliness. Well, the scriptures seem to indicate that the root of the loneliness problem is a spiritual one. And Genesis 2 and verse 25 says that Adam and Eve were both naked and they were not ashamed. And the sim that, that was the symbol of a perfect relationship. Adam, Eve and their God in the garden. But then we read in Genesis 3 and verse 7, and this was just after they had disobeyed God, that the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked. So they, they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. In other words, before their sin, Adam and Eve could be, in, could be in each other's presence, uh, naked and without shame. No masks, uh, no defence mechanisms, no psychological games. They are honest, confident, and they trust themselves and therefore they could trust each other. There was no need to hide things. And that's what the fig leaves uh, symbolise. No need to hide things, to be defensive, and therefore no need to be lonely. 
But tragically, their uh, disobedience put a stop to all that. They now felt the need to hide from one another by sowing those fig leaves together. And so began a life of loneliness, partially hidden from both each other and, of course, uh, if you know the story, from God as well. And from that moment on, the reality of life established this sad fact. To be human is to be lonely. Now, most of you, I am sure, are familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel. That comes in Genesis chapter 11. And we read in verse 1 of that chapter that the world had one language and a common speech. And so that was a picture of harmony. But a harmony that was soon to crumble. A certain town, we are told in verse 4 of that chapter, decides to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. And God is not pleased, we find out with this, and confuses their language, resulting in the people being scattered uh, across the earth. Why was God displeased? Well, some say it was because the people wanted to be equal with God, uh, the Satan complex. But looking more closely at the actual text, that does not seem to be their motive. Their motive is revealed again in verse 4, where the people say, let's build this tower so that we can make a name for ourselves. In other words, they build it not to challenge God and display their arrogance, but to impress others, to make a name for themselves and they are displaying one of the classic signs of the fallenness of humanity. They need to make people think, or we need to make people think, uh, that we're better than we are. Climbing the Tower of Babel reminds me of the story uh, James Dobson told. He said, whenever I'm tempted to become self-important, I'm reminded of what the mother whale said to the baby whale. When you get to the top and start to blow, that's when you get harpooned. And the Babel story is all about people who wanted to get to the top and blow their own trumpet. And God taught them that pride scatters. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, 1 Peter 5 and verse 5. He also taught them that through this story that pride and pretense prevent us from understanding one another, from being able to love one another. And they found that they were all speaking a different language in Babel. It's one of the biggest causes of loneliness. So the question uh, this morning is, how does the Babel principle happen in our lives today? Well, uh, we live, as you know, in a world of global communications, uh, aggressive advertising, 
and uh, all-encompassing social media. And this uh, sophisticated technological environment does a great job in convincing us that the, aisle, the ideal life is right there for the taking. And we are constantly bombarded with images of the good life that we are, we are entitled to. Films portray the ideals of love and intimacy, a showcase normally by the beautiful people, and cosmetic companies, plastic surgery clinics, and fashion houses are all on hand to show us how we can become part of the good life. And many of the contributors to social media platforms often highlight how good life is for them. And the result of all, that, all this is that Mr. and Mrs. Average, which actually is most of us, come to believe firmly that we are the odd ones out. And this image, albeit a plastic image, of the perfect life fuels the loneliness in our own souls as we search for true connection and in intimacy. And we say to ourselves, how come I live in a glass darkly, as Paul described, and they seem not to? They, so it seems, have solved the riddle of loneliness. And I must be among the few who are missing out on life. And that's what we are made to think, not realising that loneliness is actually an epidemic that touches every single one of us, however popular we think we are with our friends. So this is where we've got so far. At root, We've said, loneliness is a spiritual issue. However, that issue is made to seem even worse by the culture of the society in which we live in the 21st century. But, you know, sadly, the problem doesn't even end there. It's not only the world that heightens our feelings of inadequacy and loneliness, can I suggest to you that sometimes, sometimes, the church can be, however unwittingly, guilty of the very same thing. Now that, that idea may shock a few of you, so let me explain what I mean. In our eagerness, talking about the church in general, in our eagerness to comfort and to encourage people, we are often tempted to make claims concerning the nature of God and what God is going to do in our lives that raise our expectations sky high, but actually do not represent a balanced view of how things really are. And the inevitable result is that many precious Faithful people have their expectations of what God is going to do in their lives raised by being told how he's going to prosper them, heal them, uh, meet their needs, uh, bring them relationships, draw 
very close to them. And in our desperation and loneliness, we hold on to these promises and build our hopes on what we have been told. And it is so easy, you know, in the excitement of a Sunday meeting, I've been there loads of times, you know, the inspiring worship and the prophetic words for our expectations of God to be lifted to new levels of faith. It's a wonderful, almost ecstatic experience, isn't it, in which we are carried away in the buzzing atmosphere and excitement that a church with talented musicians and uh, inspirational speakers can generate. Surely, we think in the moment, God has got it all in hand. But then we return home, close the door behind us, and slowly but surely, it dawns on us that the problems, uh, the pain, the broken relationships, the illnesses, the absence of God, the loneliness are still very much there. And, you know, how many faithful Christians over the years have asked themselves this question? Why does God seem so real and close in church and yet so agonizingly absent at home? The inevitable result, well, our disappointment and our loneliness are heightened even more. It's very easy, you know, to make our Sunday events in particular all about glory and victory. And I must stress that most churches, most church leaders do that with the very best of motives because they want their people to be built up. They want their people to be encouraged. Very easy to do this. Not so easy though, is to present the other side of our faith, which teaches us how to embrace suffering, doubt, lack of certainty and unknowing, which actually is the reality of life for most of us. So inundated with the false messages of the media, and sometimes convinced by our church experience that we must be living a mere shadow of the Christian life, what do we do? What's the result of all this? Well, what we often do is that we join the Tower of Babel game. We start pretending, too, that we have a great life, that the joy of the Lord constantly fills our hearts, that God is so real and, pre and present to us and we present our newly invented confident self to the various people in our lives, whether face-to-face -face or more likely these days on social media. While all the while the real, insecure, lonely self is safely hidden from those around us. Don't look at the real me, look at the tower of pretense that I'm building. 
See, if we are going to become a people who overcome our isolation, our insecurities, and our loneliness, don't we have to reverse that trend? See, we have to see that temptation to impress others actually pushes people away. Because building impressive towers means that we can actually never be known and never be loved. We've got to see that revealing who we are, including our weaknesses, insecurities, and yes, even our sins, actually draws us to, our, to others. Honesty and reality not only set us free, but it sets those around us free as well. And one of the most important lessons we must learn as a church community is the incredible freedom that comes from sharing with each other our struggles and pain. We can receive real healing and courage from hearing another's honest story. Now, speaking of honesty reminds me of the story of the 92-year-old priest who was respected and admired by everyone in his community for his holiness and his closeness to God. And this guy, this priest, 92 years old, was also a member of his local Rotary Club. And each time the club met, he will be there on time, sitting in his favourite corner of the room. But then one day the priest vanished from the scene. He disappeared. It was as if he had vanished into thin air and his friends searched all over town for him but couldn't find this 92-year-old holy father. But the following month, when the Rotary Club met, he was there, as usual, sitting in his favourite corner. Father, everyone said, where have you been? Oh, said the father, I've just served a 30-day prison sentence. Prison sentence, they cried. Father, you couldn't hurt a fly. No one could be holier than you. What happened? Well, it's a long story, said the priest. But briefly, this is what happened. I was going to go to London and I'd bought the ticket and I was standing on the platform in the station waiting for the train to come when this stunningly beautiful girl appears on the arm of a policeman. And she looked at me and she turned to the officer and said, he did it. I'm certain he's the one that did it. Well, said the priest, to tell you the truth, I was so flattered, I pleaded guilty. You see, there's a touch of vanity even in the holiest men and women. And the point is, they see no reason to deny it. So anyone who deeply and honestly shares with us the struggles of his or her heart, his pains and fears, helps to make us more free. Why? Because their story is always, to a certain extent, our story. It's everyone's story. Now, when someone lays bare their heart, 
we see more clearly our own heart and our own pain and our own struggles. And that is always at least a partially freeing experience. How we could do more with honesty and less pretending in the church. And one of them, you know, for me, one of the primary evidences of being filled with the Spirit of God is not speaking in tongues. Rather, it is a life of humility and love. Now, talking of speaking in tongues, the miracle that happened at Pentecost, when the despite we remember the disciples spoke in the languages of all who were present, <clears throat> all the foreign visitors. In effect, that was the curse of Babel being reversed, turned round. People who were filled with the Spirit spoke language that all could understand. People who are filled with the Spirit have no need to build impressive towers to impress other people. We, like the 92-year-old priest, can speak honestly without feeling the need to impress others. And guess what? If we find that honesty and vulnerability, we'll find that all that draws us towards people and draws them towards us. And when that happens, guess what? It lessens our loneliness. Every one of us, as I said before, in more or less measure, is lonely. That's the problem. Can we, and if so, how do we move towards a resolution of our loneliness? And the bottom line at the end of the day is that no person can actually ease the loneliness of our hearts. Only God can do that. There was a tribe of, there is a tribe of uh, Native Americans who have this system for training their young braves. And what happens is that on the night of a boy's 13th birthday, he is taken to a dense forest, blindfolded and taken to a dense forest, to spend the entire night alone. And of course, until this point, he had never been away from his tribe, the security of his family. But on this night, he was blindfolded and taken miles away. And when he took off the blindfold, he found himself in the middle of the dark, foreboding forest by himself. And of course, every time a twig snapped, he expected a wild animal to pounce from the darkness. And every time uh, the wind blew, he wondered what more sinister sound it masked. It was a terrifying night for the young lad. And after what seemed to be an eternity, the first rays of sunlight broke through the interior of the forest. And looking round, the boy saw flowers and trees and the outline of a footpath. And then to his utter astonishment, he saw a figure of a man standing just a few feet away from him, armed with a bow and arrow. It was the boy's father, 
He had been there all night long. You see, we are never alone. Hebrews 13.5 says, Never will I leave you. Never, never, never will I forsake you. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing, says the psalmist, comes in the morning. And in the midst of our loneliness, our eyes might not be able to see all that is around us, but very soon our eyes will be able to see that the Father has been with us all along. So to draw this morning to a close, I'm going to read you a poem. And after I've read you this poem, Alison uh, is going to sing... And the poem that I'm going to read you tells the story of Maundy Thursday. You can read about Maundy Thursday in Matthew 26, John 13. It was the day before Jesus was crucified, the day when he washed the disciples' feet, including the feet of Judas, of course, who was to betray him. The day when he, was, uh, he had asked his disciples to pray for him, yet what had happened, they'd fallen asleep. How isolated and lonely he must have felt on that day. So this is the poem. I can't remember who wrote this. It was a cold, dark Thursday night. A man was discouraged, discouraged as only one could be who looks on much hard work, on much sincerity, and sees only failure and a sinking sun. On that dark Thursday night, a man feels alone and lonely and frightened. He sweats blood in darkness, the blood of loneliness, the loneliness of all people. On that dark Thursday night, a man looked on loneliness and he yearned to heal. He yearned to lead all into, into unity, into community, and out of the damned aloneness which keeps people from the warmth of life. On that dark Thursday night, a man sweats drops of blood in body and spirit. He sweats in darkness. He sweats in loneliness. And it is then, on that dark Thursday night, a man takes bread and wine and says, this is my body, this is my blood. Meet often, eat this bread, drink this wine, and when you do, I'll be there. And as on this dark Thursday night, I'll be leading you out of fear and loneliness, out of isolation and darkness, into communion, into a community of warmth and life with God and with each other. On one dark Thursday night, when the sun had long gone down, and hope and warmth had said goodbye, when the darkness of loneliness had seemed to win the earth, we were given as a gift from God the possibility of community. Amen. Now we're going to hand over to Alison, who is accompanied by Bernie.